as we are celebrating the, the week of Christ's death and resurrection together as a family, I'm glad that you uh, are able to join, and we pray that this week will be impactful to you in many ways. Pray with me. Gracious Father, thank you for this opportunity just to preach your word, to proclaim your good news. It truly is an honor and a privilege, though I know that it's by grace and grace alone. And thank you for these, your people, and the sound of my voice. I pray, Father God, that you would allow your word to impact their hearts. I pray that you will soften our hearts, allow us to be sensitive to your spirit so that we can can receive your word and so that we can bear fruit. Hide us, Lord, behind your cross. Remind us of the goodness of your resurrection, even now. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Well, every culture has some similarities. For example, uh, throughout all of history, most cultures uh, have an infatuation with art, with music, and with love. But another common thing that we see throughout cultures, throughout time, is that every culture feels a, has a need for a hero or a king. Every culture looks uh, has a story or a narrative that looks to a person for salvation, uh, looks to a person to make things right. Now, we can say that this is a coincidence, or we can acknowledge that God has built that into the heart of human beings, a desire for a king. That's why we exalt movie stars, people who are beautiful, politicians, That's why we celebrate so hard when our favorite athlete does so well. We want a hero. We want someone who's going to save us, even if it's from just mediocrity and boredom. We need it. Well, in Luke chapter 19, we meet the king that our heart longs for. In Genesis chapter 3, God promised that a king would come and he would crush the serpent's hell while only bruising his heel, and that king is Jesus. Now, what we see in Luke chapter 19 is a passage that is often referred to as the triumphant entry. This is Jesus entering into Jerusalem, being coronated as king in a triumphal way. But as I was reading this week, I couldn't help but to ask the question, is this really a triumphal entry? I mean, yes, it starts off in triumph with Jesus uh, being praised, but it ends with him literally weeping as he enters into Jerusalem with his heart being broke. So that's the first question we want to look at today. Is this really a triumphant entry or has this been mislabeled through the years? The second thing we want to ask ourselves today is, is Jesus, is Jesus your triumphant king? And are you living right now as if he is your king and rules the world. In order to do that today, we're going to look at Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 28, and we're going to look at three things in this text. We're going to see three things that says that, yes, this is, after all, a triumphant entry. And then we're going to look at two that argue against it. And then I'll answer that question for you. So if you could stand to your feet to Luke chapter 19, let's look at verses 28 through 44. Y'all looking good this morning? <laughs> Feeling good outside? All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Verse 28, starting 
Verse 28, the word reads, After Jesus said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as they went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when upon you, your enemies will build and embark a bank against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They would dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to tag this text, the not-so-triumphant entry. The not-so-triumphant entry. Well, there's three reasons I think that we could argue for a triumphant entry here for Jesus. And the first is that in this text today, we see that Jesus rightly asserts himself as king. Now, the backdrop to the story, as verse 28 and 29 says, is that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. But on his way to Jerusalem, he stops in a town called Bethany. Now, you may remember that Bethany is where Jesus' good friends, Mary and Martha, live. But specifically, according to John's gospel, we see that Jesus goes into Bethany. He stays there about six days. And while he's in Bethany, we see that he does one of the greatest miracles recorded in the scriptures. He raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. Now, Lazarus wasn't just dead one day. He wasn't just dead for two or three days. Lazarus was dead for four whole days. In fact, the gospel records that Lazarus was so dead that the author said that he stunk. It said Lazarus was dead and Jesus rose him from the grave and he stinketh. That's what the King James or he stinketh. I like that. He just stinketh. Right? He was dead. But Jesus gave life to Lazarus simply by calling his name. Lazarus came out of the grave. And according to John chapter 12, when this happened, Jesus' disciples went to the nearby villages and all the way to Jerusalem telling everybody what had just happened. In fact, this was the miracle that convinced many of them that Jesus was who he said he was. 
He was the son of God. And not only is Jesus the son of God, but he is the promised Messiah that Isaiah and David and other patriarchs looked for. So they are excited and they run uh, into Jerusalem, many of them, letting crowds of people know that Lazarus is alive. And not only is Lazarus alive, but, but that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And that's what we see in this text, that Jesus is headed into Jerusalem and that he is now asserting himself as king. Now, if you've been following the gospel narratives, you know that though Jesus was born king of the universe, that throughout his earthly ministry, he was pretty quiet about who he was. For example, we see in John chapter 6, after Jesus takes a young man's lunch and turns it into a buffet a buffet, and serves over 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread, the Bible says that the multitudes the next day went crazy looking for Jesus. Why was they looking for Jesus? Were they looking for him because they believed that he was the son of God? No. John records that they were looking for him because they said, man, we should make him king. After all, he can give us free food. He can make food appear for anyone. And what does Jesus do at that point? Does Jesus accept the crowds and say, yes, I'll be your king? No. Jesus actually preaches one of the hardest sermons that we see in the Gospels. It was so hard that all of the multitude, all of the people that were there, they left him except for his committed disciples. Jesus, though he is king, has not yet asserted himself in that role. In fact, many times in the Gospels, he would heal people. And rather than tell them, go and tell everyone, on most occasions, he said, go and tell no one. There was one time that Jesus showed himself in all of his majesty, and that was on a mountain that we call, now call the Mount of Transfiguration. It's where Jesus had an executive meeting with Elijah, the prophet from the Old Testament, and Moses. And in that meeting, Jesus' outsides went in and his inside came out. He was transfigured in such a way that his, he was radiant with light in an extremely beautiful way. But Jesus only showed that side of him to three of his disciples, to Peter, James, and John. And he actually told them, commanded them to not tell to, to, to not tell anyone of what they had just seen. So why is it that Jesus waited to now to coordinate himself as king, though he was born king, though he was eternally king? It's because Jesus was operating according to God's divine timing and God's divine plan. See, Paul rightly writes to the church at Galatia, that when the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time, that God sent his son, made of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. God had 
a plan and his plan was to be executed down to the last detail in the very last second. In Daniel chapter 9, we see a prophecy in the book of Daniel about the coming Messiah and how the Messiah would be born 483 years after Xerxes' decree. This is now the 483rd year. This is the fullness of time. This coming Friday, Jesus would be killed. As the Jewish Messiah at the exact moment in time that God had commanded while the Passover lamb was being prepared, the true lamb of God would die to take away the sins of the world. So Jesus here in this text is going to exert him, assert himself as king, but he's not any kind of king. He's not an ordinary king. In fact, we see in verse number 30, it says, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Now, Jesus rightly asserts himself publicly here as king. And the way that he's doing it is the second thing we see why this is triumphant is by fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 500 years before, Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah was coming. And how was he coming? He was coming on a donkey. Now, why is this important? Why is this an amazing part of the story? Well, for two reasons. Uh, one, that God had already spoke this into existence and in being 500 years before. Now, the disciples did not know that Jesus was fulfilling this particular messianic prophecy. In John 12, now you can go home and read it later. We see that John records that the disciples did not realize that this prophecy was being fulfilled until after Jesus was glorified, until after Jesus came back, rose from the dead. But this is amazing because Jesus is, is coming on a donkey and a king would normally come into a city, not on a donkey, but on a horse. The horse symbolized strength. The horse symbolized vitality. The horse symbolized victory. It was normally a, a war horse, but Jesus doesn't come on a war horse. He comes on a donkey. Why? Because Jesus is not coming to make war. Jesus is coming as the Prince of Peace. He's coming into Jerusalem, giving an invitation to the Jews, to God's people, to all who believe that they were to follow him. And by following him, they would be made right with God. This is also amazing because the text says that Jesus came in on a unridden donkey. Why is that significant? Well, if you know anything about animals or if you're a farmer and know anything about breaking an animal, the one thing you don't want to do is go out in public on an animal that's never been rode before. <laughs> but yet Jesus is about to ride in to Jerusalem with all kind of swag on an animal that had not yet been broken. And why is this amazing? It's amazing because it reminds us of just how awesome Jesus is. Jesus can speak to a storming sea 
and the sea obeys him and stops and is still like a well-trained dog. And Jesus can touch a donkey that has never been ridden before and have him drive him into a city as if it was a stallion that is used to people riding on. We see that Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. But there's a third reason why this text is known as the triumphal entry. And that is because the disciples, they rightly obey and praise Jesus as their king. We see in the text, verse 38, that, verse 30 that we just read in 31, that Jesus tells the disciples to go into a neighboring town and there they're going to find a, a donkey. And that the donkey was for him. And that if someone came to him and put up a fight and asked him, why are you taking this donkey, thinking that they were still in, you just say, the Lord has need of it. Now, what's amazing is, is that Jesus, things go according to Jesus's plan. Some people argue that Jesus had already uh, met with a man, told him that he was coming, and that this was going to happen. But when we look at the, the life of Jesus in the Gospels, I doubt it that Jesus had time in between raising Lazarus from the dead and preparing his disciples to go back to Jerusalem to travel two miles outside of Bethany to make this happen. I believe this, once again, is an all-knowing Jesus seeing events before they happen and decreeing to his disciples, this is how it's going to go down, and it goes down the way that he said it would. And why does it happen the way that he said it was? Because Jesus is not simply a teacher. And Jesus is not a, just a prophet. And Jesus isn't a wise sage or just a priest. Jesus is God. He is the one who spoke the world into existence and the one who is holding all things together. And throughout the scriptures and throughout this story, we see his godness. We see that he is the God man and that there is no one like him. And the disciples, many of the committed disciples, they are beginning to see that. But Jesus was asked the questions once, who do men say that I am? And they told him, this is who men say that you are. Some say that you are prophets. Some say that you are this. And then Jesus looked at him and said, but who do you say that I am? And they said, Peter said, we say that you are the son of the living God. Jesus is God. And as a result, we see the disciples obeying him. They go and they do as he said. They find a, a cult that is, is tied up. Someone comes to them and says, hey, what are you doing? And they say, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has, isn't that a powerful scene? That this man hears that the Lord, the Messiah, who he just heard raise Lazarus from the dead, needs this unridden cult. And his response is not, well, give me some money. His response is not, this is my favorite unridden cult. His response is, if the Lord needs it, take him. And that's really the sign of a committed disciple. The sign of a committed disciple is that when Jesus demands something of you, when Jesus demands something of me, that we say, Lord, if you have need of it, it's yours. And you know, Jesus demands of his disciples. For some of us today, the Lord is coming to you saying, 
let this colt go. Let this donkey go. This donkey may not be a physical donkey, I doubt it, but, but your donkey may be your spiritual gifts. The Lord has gifted you with the gift of singing. The Lord has gifted you with the gift of teaching. The Lord has gifted you with the gift of giving, with the gift of hospitality, with a, a gift of, of expressing yourself in, in a special way. The Lord saying, I need it. Let it loose. And for others, the Lord is saying, your coat is your body. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your reasonable service, Romans 12, 12 says. And the Lord is saying, give me your body. Stop giving your body away to someone who is not your husband, who is not your wife. Give me all of you. And I'm telling you that your response and my response, it needs to be, yes, Lord. If you need it, it's yours. What can the Lord do with a few people who are just committed to give the Lord whatever he needs, whatever he wants? What can the Lord do with us, Sojourn Community Church, if we had the mentality every day of our lives when we got up, Lord, my hands belong to you. Lord, my mouth belongs to you. Lord, my feet belongs to you. Lord, my day belongs to you. Lord, my pain belongs to you. Lord, my story belongs to you. And Lord, if you need it, you can have it because it's already yours. What would the Lord do if, if someone stood up and said, Lord, my riches belong to you? Rather than hoard it and keep it for myself, Lord, I am ready to give it away so that your kingdom would be advanced. But not only is this a triumphant entry because of the way in which the disciples responded, through obedience, this is a triumphal entry because of the way that the disciples praise their coming king. Look at the text. This is absolutely fabulous. Verse 35 says that they brought it to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as they went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Can you see people seeing Jesus on this colt? And the disciples take off their cloaks, they take off their shirts, they put it on a donkey because they said, this is our long-awaited king. This is the promised one that Genesis 3.15 talks about. This is the one that David promised would come. And they said, Lord, you are too worthy. You're, not, you're too worthy to sit on a donkey, uh, just, just you and the donkey. We need to put something in between. You have my shirt, Lord. And then someone else says, wait a minute, Lord, you're, you're really our king. We need to lay our clothes on the floor and create a red carpet of sorts for you because there is none like you. Can you see it? Can you see the adulation? Can you see the excitement? Can you see the hope? Can you see them seeing Jesus as the one that Isaiah promised in Isaiah 61 who would turn their ashes into beauty? Do you sense the anticipation that this is the one who will conquer Rome, who will put his people back in their rightful position? Do you hear the chants? The chant, verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king comes in the name of the Lord. Do you see the palms waving? Hosanna. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Do you hear the words being said? It's almost as if it's coming full circle in the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 2, we see angels coming to worship Jesus as a child. And what do they say? They say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And now the disciples are now chanting peace in heaven and glory in the disciples, in the heavens. This is quite the scene. I believe this is the scene that the Lord wants from all of his people as they gather together every Sunday to worship King Jesus. When we gather together, we gather together as a redeemed people. The psalmist said, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When we gather together, we don't gather as consumers. We gather as givers. We gather as participators. We gather as praisers. Psalm 100 says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. All ye lands, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. No, it is he who is God, not we ourselves, for we are his people, the sheep of his pastors. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures for all generations. Every Sunday when we gather together, we gather to worship our triumphant king, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Every day when we arise, we should rise with a sacrifice of praise on our lips as if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back tomorrow. And this is what we see taking place in this text. Jesus is being praised. Jesus is being exalted as their coming king. You know, I get nervous sometimes. I get nervous when I hear Christians say things like, you know, my praise is just between me and God. And I'm, I'm more of a private praiser. You should see me in my car. You should see me in the shower. But when I gather with God's people, I, I don't like to lift up a hand or sing a song verbally or let people know that I'm excited and, and, and praise before, before God. I, I, I'm a private worshiper. I say, that's fine. If you're a private worshiper, if, if you don't like to sing corporate songs or if you, you don't have praise on your list, that's fine. But just be consistent. When you eat a good meal, make sure you don't say, mm, this is good. Uh, make sure you don't tell other people about the meal that you had yesterday. Just be consistent. When your team hits that last second shot, make sure you don't jump up and high five anybody. Just, just be consistent. See, God has been too good for me, for me to sit on my praise. Sometimes we just have to be like David. David, the Bible says, danced until it's close. Well, maybe not. Don't go that far, but just praise him because he's been so good. So those are the reasons that we can see that this is a triumphant entry. Because we see, we see that this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Because we see Jesus is rightly asserting himself as king. Because we see the response of his disciples in obedience and in praise. But, but look at how, look at how things turn. Look at how muddled in between the shouts of Hosanna, Jesus, the king is publicly rebuked before the crowd. Look at how he ends, this narrative ends with him weeping 
his way into Jerusalem and pronouncing judgment on the city. This is why some would argue that this is actually a a not-so-triumphant entry. We see in verse number 39 that the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. They actually said, teacher. This shows us that they are not a part of the committed crowd, but rather they are part of the callous crowd. And you do know that there are three types of people. There are people who are committed to Jesus as king, as Lord and Savior. There are people who are curious, who say Jesus is an interesting person. I'm not ready to call him God, but he is interesting. And then there are people who are callous. And even here this morning, there is the committed, the callous, or the curious. See, there's really only two things to do with Jesus. Either you crown him as king or you kill him. And the Pharisees were those who were callous, those who, in essence, would kill him. Why? Well, early on in Luke's gospel, the gospel of Luke talks about the Pharisees, these religious leaders, the ones who should have known Jesus, who should have recognized his lordship, who should have recognized him as Messiah. Early on, Luke says that the Pharisees had two problems. The first problem is that they, they loved money. Second problem is that they love the praises of man more than they love the praises of God. They were supposed to, to be able to see that this was the Messiah, but they can't see that he's the Messiah because their heart is delighting in other things. And perhaps that's you today. You can't see Jesus as Messiah because you are finding comfort in another hero, in another king. That king could be your job. That king could be your spouse. That king could be your family. That king can be your appearance. The Bible tells us that all those other kings that we try to find delight in, Jeremiah chapter 2, they're broken cisterns. They cannot hold water. Jesus is the true king. Not only is he the true king, but he's everything we need. Jesus said, if you're hungry, I'm the bread of life. If you're thirsty, I am living waters. If you're tired, come to me. I'll give you rest. If you're heavy burden, cast your cares on me. But here we see the, the Pharisees, they don't like Jesus receiving praise. But notice what Jesus does here. Jesus doesn't say, okay, everybody, stop praising me. He doesn't do what Paul did in, in the book of Acts when Paul healed a man. And when people started praising him, he said, stop praising me. Because I'm only a human being. No, Jesus receives praise. Why? Because Jesus is God. I was once talking to an a Islamic uh, man. I was uh, sitting uh, in a public space and he came up to me. He, next to me, sat right next to me, just started crying his eyes out. I looked around, said, something's wrong. Um, he sat very close to me. I said, brother, is everything okay? He says, yes. Began to talk to him. He just broke up with his girlfriend. He was at his the ends of his rope, began to share Jesus with me. He says, no, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I am a Muslim. I, I am uh, Islamic. And then he said, let me ask you a question. Why is it that you Christians worship Jesus as God? My religion, my faith teaches me that he was just a prophet. And, and, and really, Jesus never claimed to be God. I said, well, I'm glad you asked. I reached into my backpack and I began to show him in the, in the Gospels where Jesus made exclusive comments about him being God. 
And then I showed him, I said, not only that, Jesus received praise as God because he was God. But look at verse 40 and how Jesus responds to this crowd. The Pharisee says, tell them to shut up. And he says, no, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. Now, this has been interpreted in one of three ways. The first way is some people say, well, what Jesus is saying is saying, listen, if my disciples don't praise me, I'll literally have a rock praise me. Which could happen. (laughs) After all, Jesus is God. If God in the Old Testament had a donkey speak to a man telling them not to go farther, then God could make a rock cry out and praise him. God is God. He could do whatever he wants. The second translation says, no, what Jesus is saying here is Jesus is talking about Gentiles because Jews spoke about Gentiles as being stones. They were lifeless. They were dead. So perhaps Jesus is saying, if these Jewish believers will not worship me, I'll cause Gentile believers to worship me. Some historians argue that. And I say, yeah, that's a good argument because after all, Jesus did come not just to save Jews, but to save everybody. I mean, the Great Commission is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, every ethnic ethnic tribe. Revelation chapter 7, we see a people from every nation, every tribe, and every tribe standing before Jesus, worshiping him. That could be it, but I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying here. I think rather Jesus is pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 11 We read these words, the stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the work will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and who establishes a town by injustice. I believe Jesus is taking up Habakkuk's mantle here. Habakkuk was pronouncing woes on the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were people who who did not believe in, in Yahweh and who had made their living through injustice, who had built their city in ways that did not honor God. What Jesus is saying is, listen, if Jerusalem does not crown me king, if Jerusalem does not worship me as such, judgment is going to come. And look at the the rest of the text. Verse 41, and as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This was a pronouncement of judgment because the people of Jerusalem would reject their king. That's why right after this, Jesus goes into the temple and turns over tables because they had rejected him. See, the crowd, the committed in, even those who were secretly callous, they would stop praising Jesus. While they sung praises of Hosanna to Jesus on Monday, the story tells us that on 
on Thursday and Friday, was standing before Pilate, and while he was being crucified, they would yell, crucify him. Praise would stop. The stones would cry out. In AD 70, Jerusalem would be turned over and ransacked. Children would die. Families would be ruined because they rejected King Jesus. So to my question, is this a triumphant entry or is this a not so triumphant entry? And he starts off with praise. He ends up, your savior ends up crying his way into Jerusalem. And I will argue that this is a triumphant entry. The reason I will argue that it's a triumphant entry is because this is exactly how God ordained it. God's king would come into Jerusalem as a paradoxical king. He would come into Jerusalem as one who was both strong and weak. That is the savior that we worship. The one who reigns and rules sovereignly and the one who became weak so that we would have life eternally. He is the one who comes in as a king, but who rides in as a a donkey. This is Jesus. And he came as a paradoxical king so that you and so that me, so that we would have life and life more abundantly. Jesus is both triumphant and non-triumphant on purpose. Jesus is the one who was born contrary to the laws of birth and who defeated death. Jesus is the one who was cradled in another's crib. It's the one who rode and traveled in another's boat. It's the one who rode on another's donkey. It's the one who supped in another's room. Jesus is the one who was buried in another's tomb, but all the while who ruled the earth. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth, the cattle on a thousand hill belongs to him. Jesus came in a paradoxical way so that we would know salvation. And that brings me to my second question. Is, is Jesus your triumphant king? Do you see him as the one who is all-knowing? It's the one who knows the future. Do you see him as the one who deserves your complete obedience and your greatest praise? Are you living and worshiping him day in, day out as the one who gives you grace and grace abundantly? And if not, I want to invite you to know this, Jesus, to know that nothing else and no one else can satisfy you but him. To see him as both your brother and your bridge builder, as the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And every Sunday we gather to remind ourselves of Jesus' love for us by taking communion. It's interesting that Jesus would go into Jerusalem and be crucified. A part of being crucified is the fact that he was mocked. The Bible says that they took thorns 
And they made it into a crown and they pressed the thorns into his skull. The Bible says that they took wood and they carved in that wood the words king of the Jews and nailed it to the cross that Jesus would die upon. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. Then he took a cup, says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, just shed for you. As Christians, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we preach, we proclaim to the world the Lord's death and the Lord's return. We take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. If you're a Christian, we will ask you and invite you to come and take communion. You can come, those in the front half of the room, you come to the front. Those in the back half of the room, you can go to the back. If you're not a Christian, we pray that you would take Christ. We look forward to the day where we will be able to take this meal with you. But we're going to ask you to refrain from this meal and, and answer that question. Is Jesus your triumphant king? Are you ready to commit your life to him? Or are you still curious and callous towards him? And if you die curious or callous towards him, the Bible says you will die without eternal life and you will be forever separated from the presence of God. Come and know Jesus. Come and commit your life to the one who committed his life for you. Let's pray.